Welcome to Thrive in the Future podcast, positive solutions to help you thrive, designing your intentional life, homesteading, gardening, and rediscovering culture and tradition. Do you want nut trees? I've got chestnut, hazelnut, elderberry, comfrey, and for a limited time I have American plum, which is a bush that can be used for hedgerows, windbreaks, and wildlife. All of them adapted for the Midwest. Check them out on grownuttrees.com. Would you like to create a place where your land and home is a source of production instead of just consumption? Would you like to know more about the various plant and tree species that are on your property and what they indicate about your climate, soil, and water resources? And have you purchased raw land and are needing guidance on developing it into a homestead or wildlife management? So Carrie from Strong Roots Resources offers these services and he's with us this week on the podcast to talk about his urban homestead and then moving to a homestead consulting business. He is at strongrootsresources.com. Okay, welcome back to Thrive in the Future. This week I have Carrie from Strong Roots Resources. Welcome, Carrie. Hey, good evening. So tell me a little bit about your homesteading over there, a little bit more about Strong Roots Resources. Yeah, so um, we are currently on uh, some family land that's been in my family since the 30s. Um, in East Tennessee, my great grandfather bought it, and we've been back out here. It's where I grew up, but we returned. My wife and I returned in 2020. But prior to that, we actually did the urban homesteading thing for about 14 years um, in close to downtown Knoxville. Really? So uh, I kind of came at things from the uh, the the micro homesteading, urban homesteading kind of mindset. Because uh, I saw no reason why I couldn't try to grow as much food as I wanted and plug together as many systems as possible on what was a uh, it was one fifth acre uh, kind of standard city lot, little rectangular mm-hmm. lot. And uh, so we did that. We did that for a little over 14 years until um, the time just seemed right to. Uh, pack up over there and return out here to the family property where my brother um, has a home and my parents live here as well. Uh, and it's been a, it's been a, it was a very good decision. It was one of those, one of those decisions that we immediately knew was the right thing to do. So I have been able to take some of the, uh, some of the, the, the thinking, the, the processes that I put together on a small space. And while I have, scaled them up a little bit i've actually um i actually keep my systems almost as tight in terms of having a a small zone one and a you know a moderately sized zone two for uh for everything that we like to do out here with gardens and food forests and things of that nature great so what do you what are some of the tips and things that you learned from your urban homesteading so after a few years, I, I realized that it wasn't that I had a lack of space. I had a I had an opportunity to be as creative as possible with absolutely every square foot of space that uh, that I had available to me. So that kind of took me down the rabbit hole of studying microclimates and studying the concept of, of stacking functions, which is kind of a, a, a principle within permaculture. Right. And 
the idea that, uh, you know, understanding like I've got, I don't just have a, a horizontal plane. I have vertical space. I can, I can do a lot in a relatively small footprint. And so, uh, that was to me, that was actually a, a welcome challenge and, it, and it's kind of a joke, but it's really, uh, it's really honest that there were times that as I was falling asleep at night, I would think, Oh, you know what? I've got the perfect idea for this little corner and this little area of the yard in terms of something that would aid our production or, um, you know, maybe it was like a, a, a good fit for a, a, a worm composting system or a, uh, black soldier fly larva growing system or something like that. Cool. So what sort of stuff uh, were you growing on that city lot? So uh, at kind of the, the peak production, which was uh, summer of 2020, um, I had probably about, I would say eight actual raised bed gardens but pretty much anything that wasn't a direct walking path was planted in one thing or another. And it was mostly perennials. We also had um, about eight backyard chickens in their own uh, coop and run system where I did a, uh, uh, I did like a deep bedding system with wood chips and straw and things like that since they did need to have their own area. Um, we had a small uh, quail operation going on. I had two different kinds of worm composting systems. I had like a smaller one that I kind of kept inside year round. And then I had a larger one um, relatively that was actually was in a old cast iron bathtub that we had pulled out of the house. Um, uh, we had a pretty decent workshop. The, the property did have a little uh, detached uh, garage. So I had my workshop in there and my, uh, uh, what else did I, I had another animal system in there. Maybe that's where the, I think that's where the quail started. And then we moved them outside in a separate uh, aviary. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so pretty much everything we had at that point in terms of plants were, we were heavy on perennials. Of course, I always did my annual planting because who's not going to have tomatoes and peppers. Um, sure. We had a little food forest in the front yard. Oh, and we had, we had two ponds. We had a little pond up front and a little, uh, like a shell system, little uh, insert that we put in the ground. And then in the backyard, we had what we called the seasonal pond where I dug out about a 10 foot by eight foot pond, maybe two and a half, three feet deep uh, because we had the unfortunate uh, problem of being in a low spot on the street. Mm -hmm. And so our yard would flood. And so I decided to capture that water. And instead of all of it winding up against the, uh, and in the crawl space of my house against the foundation of the house. So we, we basically had a little uh, wet weather pond that allowed all the things that like water basically late winter through about mid spring before it would dry up again. Um, we, we increased kind of like our wildlife diversity that way more, um, more lizards, frogs, more birds would come visit that way. Um, and then I had, we converted a portion of the back deck, which is just a little, maybe 10 by 10 deck. Um, we had covered it and screened it in and my wife built in a, uh, like a racking system for starting seeds, had lights hung up and I mostly, I would use it for starting seeds, but I mostly ended up using it for 
Cracky Hydroponics, which is a uh, it's a very simple uh, growing system for like lettuces, greens, and you can start herbs in it. And it's there's no pumps. There's just some light, some nutrient, and uh, you just grow your plants in little plugs in uh, like Rubbermaid tubs. So we had wow. that system on the back deck. Dang, you had everything going on. I like I said, I I put every corner to work as as far as I could tell, and we also ran. Um, like I said, we we were living in the city, but I tried to live like I was still in the country. So we ran uh, a wood stove, and so that also accounted for wood processing area, and um, you know stacked wood and various uh, 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 areas for um, seasoning and that sort of thing as well. So mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> it was a lot. Goodness. Yeah, you you just listed like everything you would see on a page in uh, how to do permaculture, right? So you had eight raised beds and mostly perennials. So like what kind of uh, perennials did you have? Um, pretty much all the aromatic and hardy herbs that will do well here. We had um, horseradish. Uh of course, the, the fruit trees in the front had um, a peach tree, a plum, um, a pear tree that unfortunately was just starting to produce when we moved. Um, around here, a lot of times, like kale will end up being a perennial. It doesn't really die back all the way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I fostered a lot of uh, like wild edible stuff. So we had um, violets and uh, chicory and dandelion and all that. I wouldn't just... I would just kind of leave little patches of that alone and harvest from that. Oh man. What else do we have? Um, we had a, uh, we had two great mulberries in the backyard. We also had a pecan tree in the backyard. Those were just there. We just got lucky and those trees were just there when we bought the place. Um, I would always do like around here. You can almost do garlic year round as well. Um, and uh, I actually had a little bit of success doing some ginger and uh, turmeric in pots as well. I kind of counted them as perennials, even though I brought them inside in the wintertime. Um, prickly pear. Uh, I kind of had uh, one corner of the front garden. was I called it the rescue garden. So if I would find things, uh, like people would throw stuff out on the curb. So that was full of like iris and uh, uh, daffodils different kinds of bulb plants, mums. I always had two or three mums in there. People throw mums out on the curb, not knowing that you can plant them. And in most cases, you'll have them for years. Um, so they would discard their mums thinking they're yeah. done and uh, they're really yeah. bulbs that you can bring back, right? Yeah, they're, they're just, um, as long as you get those roots planted, as long as you loosen them really well, because they're always really root bound if you loosen those roots really well and you plant them at least a few weeks before we start to get a really hard freeze and the mums themselves are still relatively green even if the flowers have browned and fallen off uh they'll come back i started one it was just a little gallon pot so i just set it on the curb took it home and planted it and um that thing survived about four years and it turned into this probably three by three bush in that time wow so and mums are actually quite easy to propagate. So if people are new to propagating, go get a $5 mum from, you know, or, or even better, go, you know, go pick them up off the curb, but go get a mum 
and you can just take little six inch cuttings and they just root very easily and you could easily have yourself a nice little side hustle um, making mums from one parent plant. So yeah. yeah, they're, they're, they're very adaptable little plants. Yeah. I think Grant Payne on, uh, on our thriving community channel on telegram does that he goes and gets like uh, cuttings where they're cutting off the extra at mm-hmm. home Depot or the nursery or whatever. And they would throw those away Yep. And then he gets them from his girlfriend and then plants them out as cuttings. So yeah, he talks about that stuff all the time. That's great. So that's a lot of production. Um, did you feed that into a uh farmer's market or or um share the food or what else what all did you do with it? We pretty much, you know, we pretty much shared with neighbors and family. Um we would put up a little bit. Um I, we would do a little bit of canning. Um it really made more sense for us to put more stuff in the freezer and, and dry some stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause it's just my wife and I, so, you know, we don't put up, you know, tons and tons of food. Um, uh, yeah. And actually in my last two years there, we, I uh, picked up a couple of plots at the community garden down the road and kind of just took that harvest and just put it right back into the community. We had like a little table set up by mm-hmm. the sidewalk and, you know, we would harvest stuff and set it out and neighbors would come by and grab something or trade something. So, that's good. yeah, it was um, I never really tried to track how much we were growing at the time by weight or anything. But I tell you, like I never especially when I had the crack heat going full time, um, we never bought lettuce. We very rarely bought, you know, any vegetables unless we just had, you know, a hankering for something that was kind of out of season. Um and, uh, I mean, we pretty much could eat something, two or three somethings off the homestead year round, depending on uh, what time of year it was. Okay. So yeah, that, uh, how did you keep the department of making you sad and, uh, you know, the neighbors from getting on your case, just bribe them with food? We were, we were in a neighborhood where nobody really cared. Okay. Um, it's uh, it's an older. It's actually the oldest neighborhood in Knoxville. Um, it's an old railroad community, very much like a working class community. So sure. most everybody had some kind of garden going on anyhow. And uh, Knoxville is actually kind of getting a decent little reputation of being kind of a uh, very like farm to table, like urban homesteading, urban gardening is is popular, and the mayor thinks it's cool. So, um. We were fortunate that we uh, we never had an issue. Always made sure like the chickens couldn't get out. Like I didn't want them to go, you know, wreck somebody's yard. Um, but uh, yeah, we were we were the opposite of an HOA. Fortunately, so that was one mm-hmm. thing we never had to concern ourselves with. Oh, that's good. Great. And then so so you said you had horseradish what's your favorite thing to do with horseradish i always have a hard time finding things to do with it i like growing it it grows really well but then uh what's your favorite thing to do with that um i just like harvesting the root and i just i just shred it up and mix it with like a little bit of mayonnaise or a little bit of olive oil because i like i really like robust flavors Mm -hmm. um I, i really like fermented stuff so uh, I would just throw, I would just make, basically make a sauce or a paste and use it on like a, like a Reuben or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. Great. That sounds good. 
the nice thing about horseradish too, especially when you plug it into a system where you've got, you know, if you kind of plug it into like your food forest style where you've got these multiple layers, um, there is, I can't remember the name of the little beetle right now. It's kind of like a potato bug, but that bug will be attracted to the leaves on that plant. Horseradish leaves, you know, they get really big and they will chew those leaves down, but they don't really seem to hurt the plant or the root. And I did not find those bugs on any of my other plants. So it's kind of like a, uh, I forget that there's a term some people use for it, but it's kind of like an attractant for the bugs that can do a lot of damage. So they weren't on my cabbage. They weren't on my kale, but they wore out that horseradish for some reason. Hmm. Yeah. They, they're attracted and then, and then, yeah, they'll, uh, what is the, yeah, it's trap plant or something the like trap that. Plant yeah. or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So one of the things you were talking about on your website is having a production mindset rather than just consumption mindset. How do you fit that into the systems that you have? I think that was kind of my um, my bottom line. Uh, I was about 23 when we got the house. Um, and my, my wife asked me at the time, like what I wanted for my birthday. And we've been in an apartment for a couple of years. And I said, I would really like to have a house. And as soon as we got the house, one of the first books that I found as a book um, by Kelly Coyne and Eric Knudsen, and it's called The Urban Homestead, and they're authors out in California, and they basically said up front, there is no reason why your house should only cost you money. Like your property, regardless of size, should return some kind of value into your life. Mm -hmm. So... I just kind of took that concept and went a little crazy with it. And, you know, like I said, I never really tracked numbers or anything at that time, but I know for certain, like, yes, I had to pay a power bill. Yes. I had to pay, um, you know, the mortgage and the insurance and the escrow and all that. But I got so much joy and happiness and relaxation from putting those systems together um, whether or not they might, I mean, I, I'm sure in some ways, like, especially in the firewood department, we know for sure, like we knew how much money we were saving by doing that, but mm-hmm. even by producing food, by propagating plants, you know, I would make little sales here and there, um, sure. on things like that. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was another source of income. So I had some reassurance that while it, at the time, like it could not replace, a full-time income, it would still, um, in a, in a way pay for itself. So we were, um, you know, and, and, and in that time we were most definitely and still are like whatever we call middle class these days. But, you know, I was, I was working on an ambulance for about $10 an hour and my wife was working at a hospital making about the same amount. So, you know, nobody was rolling in and out there, but we were, um, I just, when I came home, you know, I, I would hear people talk about this bill and that bill and, and this broke and it's going to be expensive to fix. And I kind of had, had the attitude of, it was already like a 110 year old house when we bought it, we knew stuff was going to break. And my opinion was how much worse can I make it if I try to fix it first? <laughs> so, right. um, so between like taking on that attitude and then 
doing all this different productive stuff and simply learning as much as I learned in that time, um, that that property gave back way more than it took from me. Yeah, it's funny. We've had uh, we've gotten arguments on homesteading boards on Telegram about uh, whether, oh, I don't want to get I don't want to use my property for production because that kind of uh, that gets me into a usury mindset or into, you know, something like that. And it's like you don't have to take it so seriously. You know, you're offsetting your food bill if you if you're growing plants and you're selling some of them, then, Hey, you got money to buy other plants or, you know, propagate them out. So, you know, it, it's, it, it makes sense without having to get all wound up about, you know, um, like you're compromising your, your, your values or something like this guy was saying. So it was kind of funny. Yeah. Some people overthink the whole thing. I was doing it because it made me happy. That mm-hmm. was really the bottom line because I, you know, I was, I was in a job that was relatively stressful, had pretty long hours. Sure. And with the kind of rotating schedule that I had for most of that time, I would have, you know, two days at home and then a couple days at work and then three days at home and then it would reverse. So I always looked forward to that three day weekend because I was just like, man, I've got three days in a row. Like I can knock out a lot of big stuff in that amount of time. You know, a lot of people, they're trying to squeeze stuff into two days on the weekend or they're trying to smash in stuff for three or four hours after they get home and they've dealt with a commute and all that kind of stuff. So it was, it was just a, a source of, of joy for me. It was pretty much my number one hobby. Um, I built a lot of good relationships with my neighbors by doing it. We had all kinds of like wildflowers right up against the, you know, the roadside and people would walk their dogs. We were on a relatively quiet street. So, mm-hmm. you know, people were always out walking or kids in strollers and it made them happy to see the flowers and see the fruit trees. And, and most people just thought it was cool. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're making yourself sad about the whole thing, you, you might be going about it the wrong way. Right. <laughs> yeah. I work from home since, uh, since COVID, and I can be having the worst day and have like 10 or 15 minutes for lunch. And I'll just run outside to the garden for that 10, 15 minutes and it completely resets. Yeah. So, you know, and it, it, it gets resets, priorities, resets, everything. So it's really great. Yeah. I would do something pretty similar. Like a, a lot of the time that I was in EMS, I was on a night shift. So my circadian rhythms were always a little bit off, but I would, uh, you know, come in off duty, take a shower, you know, tell my wife hello and like just go chill in the backyard or chill by the pond for a few minutes and kind of shake off the aggravations of that day. And um, and then it was just like a reset and I was I was good to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So one of the things you talk about now, you've moved over to your family land, right? Yeah. And tell a little bit about uh, what you got going on over there. Yeah. So um, the the spot that we're at now, we've got about 10 acres that are um, kind of our spot to, to do whatever we want with. Um, and we are, we are on a hill. So we've, everything is um, on contour. Everything is, uh, I had to learn real quick 
Like it didn't make any sense to make my compost somewhere where when it was finished, I had to push it in a wheelbarrow uphill because we don't have four wheelers and side by sides and stuff like that. Like it's, you know, a lot of wheelbarrow work. Um, sometimes I use a pickup truck, but a lot of times that doesn't make sense. So, sure. um, so we kind of, I kind of had, I did have to go back to the drawing board on a lot of things. I was smart enough to start with still keeping everything really close. So my, my primary kind of like my, my urban medicinal garden and my main kind of, it's a kind of a blend of a perennial and annual garden is, you know, right out the front door and then right behind the shop, which is just adjacent to the cabin. So I kept everything really close. Um, I got right back to like catching water right away. So I got, you know, hooked up rain barrels and all that good stuff. Wow. And really the biggest differences out here, um, I am able to obviously more, more space is more work. So I do spend time. I, like, I have to mow now. <laughs> I didn't really have to mow a whole lot before because I had wood chipped the entire yard at the old place. Um, out here. So yes, there's, there's mowing. There's, you know, trees that have to be dealt with to make sure they're not, you know, messing up my stuff or, you know, uh, there's, uh, we're off grid here. So there's, solar panels to be maintained. There's all that equipment to be, you know, kind of checked and maintenance and that sort of thing. So uh, we are a little more spread out. I definitely get more walking in. Um, and our, our predator pressure is significant. And that has actually been one of the bigger issues out here is um, not letting every animal I want up here get, you know, taken out by mostly hawks, raccoons, and uh fox and coyote so um we have kept birds we were able to keep birds for a short amount of time and then the predators remember that there's birds and they come back out and so and that's even with birds in tractors or birds in well enclosed covered uh coops and all that good stuff we still have predators come in so um so we're not even doing birds right now we've had turkeys we've had chickens and we have gone back to the drawing board to come up with another mobile chicken tractor design that is light enough that I can move it by hand, sturdy enough that all my birds don't get taken out. Mm -hmm. um, so can cool you do thing, like uh, can you do like um, quail in in your shop or something? We definitely could. We actually have a structure that we originally built for quail, mm -hmm. but we are now thinking about converting it just slightly to do rabbits because it would actually make more sense for um the way we feed our dog we feed our dog raw and we ran the numbers mm. on what we pay for um raw chicken and that sort of thing and she already tries really hard to catch all the rabbits up here but she's just 10 years old and she's not fast enough so right. i think we're actually probably going to get um, rabbits back underway we'll get the renovations done over the winter time and get a rabbit system going both with tractors and with like a breeding pair system inside the formerly uh, quail thing. I like the quail, but uh, they're not. Um, I think they're, they're a great, like if you want to produce meat in an urban or suburban area and nobody really know about it, quail is the way to go. Um, mm -hmm. For us, they, they are small. So you have a lot of small bones they're quick to process, but they're actually more work to cook is at least that's my wife's opinion. Um, our arrangement is I grow all the foods 
And the minute that food comes inside, it is now her problem. <laughs> so whether it has to be preserved or cooked or whatever the case may be, I mean, it's not that I don't help, but like, that's kind of where the delineation of responsibility splits off. So mm -hmm. she's not as crazy about the quail, but we did realize it would make a lot more sense. I guess we could, we could raise quail for the dog as well. And there's even a possibility we could probably stack those two functions in, in this big aviary that we have built. Right. Um, and then the most recent thing that we've got going on out here that I'm most excited about is uh, sheep. We have uh, 13 Katahdin sheep and a guardian donkey. And these sheep, um, they're not ours. We're doing a land lease. So there is a mm. local lady who runs a meat-based CSA and farm store. And she takes her stock and she, you know, puts together like a leasing arrangement with landowners. And so she brings her stock out. She provides the initial like electric fencing, the fence charger, um, some minerals, and she's we'll, we'll, we'll have hay for the wintertime. We'll need a little bit. And my job is to basically be the daily caretaker. So I set up their fence. I move them, you know, do wellness checks, make sure they've got water, make sure they've got minerals and all that kind of stuff. And over time, as the sheep make more sheep, we will be able to split those offspring. And um, it kind of depends on how many are produced, but uh, we will get to keep some and then she gets to keep some and then we can decide, you know, do we continue raising our own sheep? Do we process them? You know, whatever the case may be. So we've mm -hmm. started this in right at the end of July. So this is a fairly new thing, but it's made me very happy because we've got about, I'm going to say about 10 acres of pasture on like multiple areas up here where we are. It's a little bit disjointed. Um, so sometimes I have to kind of move them a little bit of a distance from one pasture to another. But uh, we have been able to get ruminants back on this soil, which has been a huge, um, this has been something that's just been huge to me to get this. Ruminants are the best way to heal the soil, and the soil up here needs a lot of help. So mm -hmm. um, I'm really grateful for the opportunity for this partnership because it has let me go on this learning curve um, with the sheep owner with her help, but I have not had to lay out a significant um, amount of money obtaining them, the infrastructure, and all that kind of stuff. So is the guardian dog her dog? Uh, it's, a donkey. The sheep? it's a donkey yeah and oh, guardian. oh okay it's a yeah donkey. yeah she's a guardian a donkey yes and wow. she um her name is primrose she's uh -huh. a very good donkey i never really thought that i would like a donkey but i like uh -huh. this donkey quite a bit yep. and um uh marcy the lady who owns the sheep she found her a few months back um because she asked me she said okay do you want a livestock guardian dog or do you want a donkey? And my dog does not particularly care for other dogs. Mm -hmm. So even though they would always be separate and that animal would stay with the sheep, I said, why don't we try a donkey? Which mm -hmm. is kind of the traditional way, really. Right. Um, and uh, and see how it goes. And so far, so good. So uh, it's I have been told, generally speaking, like, 
fox and coyote will not bother adult sheep. Um, probably having, you know, a 450 pound donkey out there doesn't hurt. <laughs> um, and I do run a little bit of extra fencing to help discourage, like I run an extra bottom strand to kind of discourage anything pushing under. Sure. Um, Cause we, we do, we've got, you know, a couple packs of coyotes up here. We've even had one hanging out in the front yard in the middle of the night recently. So we're just kind of keeping our fingers crossed and, uh, cause right, like right now where the sheep are, aren't super duper close to our cabin. Like if something were to go wrong, I probably wouldn't hear it happening in the middle of the night. So, right. um, so yeah, guardian. And, uh, I've seen donkeys, uh, taking on coyotes and they, they tear them up. So we've got a, we've got a mini donkey and we really like her. And I've seen what she does with the neighbor's uh, encroaching dog. So it's kind of funny. She leads them on then she whip right around on them and stuff. And you're just like, okay, cool. he's going to learn his lesson here before too long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Primrose, she's really mild mannered. Um, but I am, trusting that if she was presented with any kind of threat that she would she would make it be known that she doesn't want to be messed with i mean mm -hmm. i'm you know i've i've been i've really taken my time getting to know her and earn her trust um it's been a long time since i've been around larger livestock we had cattle up here when i was a child but mm -hmm. um i haven't really been around anything like that um you know for more than 20 years so uh the um you know, I wanted and, and, and Primrose, she was a little bit skittish when she came to us because of the previous place she had she had originated from was, I guess, apparently not the best conditions. She was a little underweight. Um, but since she's been out here on fresh grass and plenty of sunshine, she's been doing really well. So cool. I wouldn't sneak up behind her. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So. Tell me a little bit about your strong roots resources. You've got a consulting thing. You've kind of done it all um, permaculture wise. And so you're doing some um, in-person consulting now. Yeah. So I, I started the business officially in 2019 um, with actually the original ideas. I thought maybe I would turn it into a small homestead touring service hmm. and I, I went down to the, the local chamber of commerce and they have like a little mentorship program for entrepreneurs. And I talked it over with a group and with a lady there. And she's like, you know, it's cool. Cause I was thinking of like agritourism, but smaller, like for people who had regular urban homesteads who still did like nine to five work, but maybe they wanted to show people around, but they didn't want to deal with the logistics of it. I would handle the logistics kind of thing. Sure. And, uh I still think it's a good idea, but after a while, after, after undergoing my mentorship process, this lady said, why don't you just teach people about what to do? And maybe you could do tours later, but it was like the liability, I had to get a van, you know, it's going to be a lot of people wrangling, which I didn't really have a lot of time for at that particular time. So she said, why don't you look into teaching people how to do this stuff? And it had really never occurred to me. Even though by that time in, in kind of like my friend group and my acquaintance group, I had become known as like the guy who grows everything in his yard. So when my friends ended up buying houses, they would call me up and say, hey, where should I put a garden? How should I do this? What's up with my fruit tree and that kind of thing? Wow. So 
I, I basically did. I, I took a hobby and oddly enough determined that um, people will, uh, will exchange value with me in order to learn and sure. to have the opportunity to kind of hire somebody to help them to help not only to just teach, but to do research, to help problem solve, to avoid, uh, you know, in permaculture, what we call type one errors, the errors that are very expensive and very painful to fix. Mm-hmm. And so um, I had kind of, you know, parted around with it a little bit in 2019. I had the entity established. I was starting to pull a website together and a little bit of a social media presence. And then um, in March of 2020, of course, we all we all know what went that happened and, and all the all the craziness of uh, the uh, the shutdowns and things like that. And so I was laid off from the job I had at the time. Uh, at that point, I had left EMS. I've been out of EMS since uh, the previous fall. And so um, I was just working kind of a couple of different wage jobs. Uh, that job closed and we did not know when we were going to reopen. So I pretty much went to, uh, I just immediately pivoted and said, well, let me see what I can do with this business. Wow. Um, I was also uh, uh, doing, I was doing like some lawn care, a little bit of landscaping. So I kind of had, I had a small base of customers for, you know, a few hundred dollars here and there. So I was like, let me scale up this stuff. I've got the equipment. I'm home now. So let me, you know, serve these customers. And then I also noticed the explosion of, with everybody being home, everybody wanting to know about growing their food and not just a little bit, but they're like, no, like, how can I really do this? Like some people were concerned with, uh, you know, the idea about food shortages and things of that nature. They were like, well, maybe I can do more. In, in even my little yard than I thought I could. So I just started watching for these questions in various gardening forums, um, preparedness forums, things like that, even just the regular old neighborhood stuff on next door. Um, I was just kind of watching for those questions and I would answer questions. And then I would say, hey, if you would like, you know, some consulting or some guidance on this, here's my contact information. I'd be happy to chat more. And um, I actually did a count yesterday or a couple of days ago and since um march of 2020 i have had 40 separate exclusively um consulting customers wow which i i was thinking i was like nah, you know it's maybe been like maybe 20 25 but no i just because i have a document for each one and mm-hmm. uh and i i counted them three times so i thought that was pretty neat um it is. After so after so I I still come at things very much from the um, urban and suburban mindset. Uh, I really like to help people on that level because you can kind of you know blow people out of the water with how much you can do in a small space. Mm-hmm. And um, but I've gotten comfortable enough at this point to where I'm I'm happy to consult on larger properties uh, and help kind of figure out some of some of the larger systems. Sure. So give give an example like. Uh... If someone was there, they just bought a house um, and then they uh, they want to start growing their own food. Right. Um, how would you how would you approach that? So when I am, um, we usually like to have a conversation on the phone first because I like to make sure that I can help them. I like to make sure that we can understand each other, you know, communication and uh, 
And if somebody is exceptionally hung up on aesthetics, I tend to suggest that maybe I'm not the best fit for them. It's not that we can't consider that, but to me, that's not foremost. So after that initial conversation, I'll go out to their home and we'll spend as much time as they need. Um, even in a small yard, it's, it's a couple of three hours a lot of the time. And the first thing I like to know is where, what is your daily path? When you pull in from work, if you commute to work, or even if you're home most of the time, where are you? You know, because you got people who neglect their front yard or they neglect their backyard. There's just areas that they never go. A lot of people never see the eastern side of their home. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we like to walk around and sometimes it's apparent, sometimes it's not. But I, I like to know, like, where are your paths? Where is your activity? Because that's where we're going to start building stuff. We're going to keep it really close and we're going to gradually work our way out. Um, so we'll have that conversation. We'll have a conversation about what are your goals? Um, I like to keep help people be really realistic because often, and so we'll break it down into long-term and short-term goals, but often somebody will say, regardless of the size of the property they're on, a lot of times they're like, well, I want gardens and fruit trees, and then I want chickens and then for lane and chickens for me. And then maybe in a couple of years we can get a cow and and so they kind of, I, I let them have like their, um, their big brainstorming session and I'll take notes the whole time and then we'll mm -hmm. kind of funnel it back down into, okay, what do you feel is realistic to achieve in the next six months or within the next year? And we'll talk about budget and things like that too, because there's no point in me suggesting, you know, $10,000 of stuff if you've only got $3,000 to spend in that year. So we'll, we'll go over those questions. Right. And um, I always get a really good list of like, what does your family like to eat? What do you avoid? You know, what is best um, fresh? What stores really well without a whole lot of effort? And um, what is, uh, you know, maybe we pick out one or two new things to try, but I don't want to throw out a whole bunch of, you know, as, as cool as it looks in the, you know, the territorial seed company catalog. I don't want to throw a whole bunch of crazy things at people who are just getting started. Yeah. Especially starting where they're at, you know, what kind of stuff do you like to eat? Because people see stuff in the, in the Baker Creek catalog and they go, Oh wow, I really like Moringa and I'd really like this. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> would you really a be able to grow that and B would you like it? Would yeah. you eat it? Right. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people, won't won't eat those things so yeah, yeah. so i i try to help people really like drill down and get and get realistic about stuff and then you know ultimately like we'll end up having conversations about you know do you have ideas about other ways you could earn income on this property there was a place i was out um just about an hour uh west of us um a lady who has this absolutely beautiful like 100 plus acre spread like just a steal of, of land and home and everything and it's a lot of pasture and a big ring of woods and, and um a uh a creek and it's just like everybody's like picturesque uh homestead property and there's but there's not much i mean the, the house is out there and a little outbuilding and that's that's it and the only thing that's been harvested out there has been hay for a mm -hmm. long time and it shows so the soil needs some help because nothing really has been returned back into the soil for a long time. And we had the best 
conversation with her, one of her sons, and a gentleman who's like a neighbor and a handyman helping her out. Mm -hmm. And they just like, it was this amazing session of like ideas about retreat centers and um, uh, the ability, like, uh, you know, Airbnb and hip camp and things like that. But um, this lady wanted like a space where people could come who are trying to just, you know, get through a difficult time in their life because of things that she had dealt with. And, um, you know, they wanted to lead uh wild edible walks across the property and like mushroom identification. And it wasn't just about, you know, what can the land give to us, but like, how can we share this land with other people? Interesting. So, yeah, how'd I mean, you dial, how'd you dial that back in? What's that? <laughs> how'd you dial that back in to re, um, be <laughs> realistic with step one and two? Yeah. Well, and I, after, you know, after we had like the big expansive conversation, I had like pages and pages of notes. Um, I did. I, we took it back to, I was like, okay, would you like me to provide you with an approximate timeline of, you know, in October, let's do these two things. And in November we'll do the, and it started with like, um, pick out which brand of raised bed you would like. I will send you some suggestions of stuff that I have used that I like, but you know, so I like, I, I, I took it way down to just very little simple things. And I was like, I love your vision. I am fully on board to help you however I can. But, you know, let's let's uh, let's get this a little more dialed in here. So, uh, yeah, but sometimes people just they they've you know, they've got to uh, they've got to get that information out there. And it's kind of like, you know, uh, and and she's one of those like I can just tell like she's, she's going to make it happen. She'll find a way. So sure. uh, but a lot, and that's actually the prioritization of tasks that that's actually requested of me quite often is they know they want stuff to happen, but they're not exactly sure which order to go about it. And mm -hmm. I, sometimes I come in on properties where people have several not quite finished projects, infrastructure and things like that. And I'll even just help them prioritize okay, it makes sense to finish this first and then that will allow this next thing to happen and so on. And that can be a significant weight and uh, stress reliever for a lot of people. Sure. So on your website, it also says that you go out when somebody looks at a new land and then you help consult on what they could do with that land before they they purchase it. Give a little idea how that works. That's interesting. Yeah, so I help gentlemen... Uh, back in early July or so, uh, looking at a property down near Chattanooga, and um, it was a property that they wasn't even technically on the market. He heard, he got like he heard through a couple of different people that these folks were interested in selling, but they were going to be very particular about who they sold it to because they didn't want it developed. So this is mm -hmm. like a young man with a young family wants to like raise multiple generations on this land, wants a spot where his kids. And grandkids and everybody. So we got out there and um, a lot of times when I'm out there, I am looking at, is there something that has been done here that is going to be incredibly difficult to undo? Sometimes it's like, is does the infrastructure not make sense at all? Um, one example is like, and this is not one I've seen, but another, a friend kind of mentioned this story one time where uh, in... Uh, Minnesota, so super cold. 
the chicken coop was built onto the northeast side of a barn. Mm -hmm. It was always iced over. And when the ice finally melted in the spring, it was always a big mud pit because it never got any sun on it and it had no drainage. It was also in a bowl. So it's like, are we finding things that are going to be more aggravation than it's worth? Are we finding signs that the land has been contaminated in some form? Is it, uh, you know, <laughs> was it possibly like a super fun site or something like that? I know a lady in Oklahoma, a friend of mine who, um, she, her property is on an old, I can't remember if it was like cobalt. It was some kind of mineral mine. Mm -hmm. And um, with that involved like a bunch of uh, machinery. And she says they find like grease rags, like push up out of the earth all the time, like old rags soaked in grease. So it's like, is it, is it a dump? Has it had, has it had glyphosate sprayed endlessly on it? Is it, uh, is it in a floodplain? Um, is it in like a tornado lane, things like that. So, so we kind of look for stuff that would be concerning. And then after we've addressed that for an hour or so, kind of depending on the size of the land, we start looking at the what ifs. So if we don't run into any huge issues that sometimes uh, I kind of look at it as like a building inspector, but for the outside. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're building inspectors and you're, you're, uh, your maintenance guys, you know, they're looking for electrical and plumbing issues. I'm looking at, are you going to have a driveway that's going to be impossible to maintain? Did they just fix the gravel, but the next time we have a heavy rain, all your gravel is going to be at the bottom, things like that. Um, but after we address all that, we start, we just start looking at the possibilities like any other piece of property. And uh, we look to see what's uh, a big part of it is like, what's already there. What's, um, you know, do we have mature like fruit and nut trees? Do we have uh, perimeter fencing? Do we have uh, two or three extra outbuildings? You know, the possibility of endless there. Do we have some kind of water on the land? Do we have the ability to get more water on the land, but not too much water? Things like that. Yeah. 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 That's my biggest uh, gap in preps is water. So. Yeah. I'm always looking at like. You know, I never underestimate the the usefulness of even like micro swales. Like I've dug just like little swales all over the place here, with, just with a broad fork, mm -hmm. because we are on so much slope that uh, it just makes sense. It's like, man, if I just like caught the water right there and sunk it into the ground, you know, we've been in a drought pretty much since early August, right. and with the exception of. Um, some cuttings that I'm trying to get to root. I haven't watered anything out here because mm -hmm. these swales just do such a good job of getting water into the ground. And then I've got a couple of tanks that I catch into, but I haven't really cracked either one of them. So, right. Yeah. Never underestimate even, even just, you know, my, my thinking is you can always dig a little swale and make it bigger if you need to make it bigger later. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the same thing. I've got a, uh... I extended my garden and my orchard area, but it's too far away from the water. And uh, it, all of the nut and fruit trees were dying. So I hand dug swales and mounds with a broad fork yep. over the course of a spring and then planted the apples, the pears and the chestnuts into those mounds. And, and they seem to do much better. Yeah. It's amazing what just that little, you know, that little bit of effort, uh, how much of a difference that it makes. Um, 
because I, I've got a swale in the food forest now that I dug at the end of this past winter. So this is the third year for the food forest. And it's, it's just a huge difference from the two years prior where I just didn't put it in. And it took me like three hours was it, you know, I did it in like two 90 minute increments in a day. Mm -hmm. So you do most of your consulting locally. Do you also do like remote consulting? So if someone contacts you and says, Hey, can, uh, can you look at my property? Can they give you enough information on Google earth or whatever to do a, like a remote consult? Do you do stuff yeah. like that too? I'm getting, I'm getting more comfortable with doing remote consulting. Um, I do feel like I'm going to be somewhat limited in what I can provide there. Sure. Um, it's certainly something like I, I would definitely like not charge as much, but I could certainly, uh, you know, like I said, with, with Google earth, topography maps, things like that, you can get a pretty good idea. Um, but you know, if at all possible, I really do like to travel. And my other thing is, is like, you know, I'm from here. I've spent my entire life in East Tennessee. I've spent all but two semesters of college in this town. So I like to keep it within about a four hour radius because I feel like this is the area I know, you know, I know the plateau, I know the mountains, you know, I'm fairly comfortable with like in North Georgia and North Alabama. Um, and, you know, I know what can grow here. I know what won't grow here. So I really like to keep, I think I like to take that like local knowledge and really put that to work. But I mean, I wouldn't turn somebody down. I mean, even if somebody just wanted to contact me, send me a bunch of info, talk stuff out. And, you know, maybe I just come up with like a real modest one-time fee or something that, you know, help them uh, kick around some ideas and things, or even better, help them find somebody local. That is the nice thing at this point. I've worked up and put together a pretty decent network. So I can probably through my various networks, find you somebody who's in your region um, because I just, I think that's so critical is, um, is that local knowledge. Right. Yeah, that sounds good. So how can folks contact you? Uh, strongrootsresources at gmail.com. Um, the website is strongrootsresources.com. The, the homepage has a pretty descriptive uh, uh, set of information about the services that I offer and kind of how I have everything structured out. Um and uh, I've got probably a couple spots left for this year. I have started um, with the exception of one, uh, like the kind of like the most, like the kind of quickest, smallest, most informal of consults. Um, everybody else, every other uh, kind of like tier that I have is lifetime consulting. So I discovered that, I had things set up for like six months, a year, year and a half, things like that. And I would find that people were trying to rush their process, but they were trying to get mm. stuff done while I was still like hired by them. And I was, I was just realizing I'm like, this is not good. None of this should be rushed. So I adjusted my pricing a little bit and it is now, uh, you were essentially buying like a lifetime membership to my brain <laughs> and my experience. So yeah, I saw that. That's uh, that's interesting. You have on there one thing where it says you get unlimited follow up and research as needed for you know follow up questions and stuff. I was like, how in the world do you do that without them, you know, <laughs> doing that five years later or something like that? 
I am working under the belief system that because of the most number one, I don't take every single person who comes to me. Sure. So I, I do use a certain amount of discernment, but um, if I am doing my job well, and I am working with a person who is motivated to kind of to put in the kind of work that is needed to build a homestead, then as we go along, technically they should need me less and less and less if I've done a good job of teaching them. Right. And, but to me, it made sense where if I go into somebody's property tomorrow, I'm like, okay, you need this here and that there, and this is what needs to happen. And they're like, okay, I'm, it's going to take me about five years to get all of this complete. It's to me, it's not fair to charge them and then not have the opportunity to follow up with me in a year or two years or three years. So this is the first year that I've done the lifetime. And I'm also based off of the people who I've worked with for a year, even just a year. There's like a lot of questions up front, a little mm -hmm. bit of extra research, clarification, adjustments, things like that. And then through the year, it actually does taper off. And I, and I check back in with people, you know, I, I keep a list of everybody and I check back in and say, Hey, do you need anything? How's it going? Is there something I can, you know, you know, go to work for you on or whatever. And sometimes there is, but a lot of times they're like, yeah, I'm just, you know, we got this done and we're waiting on this contracting company to come out to take care of these earthworks or whatever the case may be. So, uh, so, I mean, it's a little bit of a risk, but I can't imagine ever doing anything else. This, this is legitimately my passion. It is what I'm, I am steering my business to be, um, fully, you know, to, to, to make all of my earnings through consulting, education, local classes, local gatherings, and things like that. So technically, from my point of view, I should, you know, I, sh I should be available to assist in these things because I'm, yes, I'm helping people, but more importantly, this is a way of building my community and providing value to them and creating relationships. Right. So, um, if I put in the effort to help people design their property, it's because I care. <laughs> and, um, it's just like, I would answer a question for a friend. So, um, uh, I will answer a question for somebody who has decided to exchange value with me as well. Oh, that's great. Thanks, Carrie. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. I, uh, I enjoy getting to share the story. Are you thriving this summer? Join the Thriving Community Telegram group where we share our real-world successes and failures on homesteading, gardening, and designing your intentional life at signup.thriveinthefuture.com. And check out Thriver News. It's thriving community news without the noise. It's where Perpet and I have more long-form articles about different topics including homesteading, intentional living, for example, some of the things we've had here is how to make comfrey salve or balm on the fly, uh, the challenge of being present, basically musings from around the fire pit, teaching kids that failure is an option, a food forest walkthrough of year three, what worked and what didn't. So check it out at thriver.news. And if you like this episode, consider joining the Thriving Patreon, where you can get early episodes, extras, outtakes, ebooks as well as lots of bonuses. That's at patreon.com slash thrive in the future. 
Thank you for listening to Thrive in the Future podcast. If you like what you hear, please click that like or subscribe button in your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Thrive in the Future and also go to thriveinthefuture.com.